All right, welcome back everybody to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 101, and it is the second half of our panel discussion on Jesus and trauma that we began last week. This episode is a little shorter. We go in a different direction. Uh, It begins with, I brought up a subject of forgiveness, and I did so in a very particular kind of lens that I had in mind, and... uh, and what happened then was the conversation went in a very different direction and in, in really great and surprising and interesting ways. I think it was really telling the way that Jerome said in the first half, we are going to not be good at this until we are. We are going to uh, trip and stumble and fall until we become good at this. And I think I provide a fairly <laughs> decent example of uh, of a little bit of stumbling uh, also bringing up a subject that is loaded in ways that I hadn't remembered, ways that I didn't nuance when I brought it up. Uh, but the end, uh, the end result is this really uh, beautiful conversation all about what it means to enter forgiveness. Is reconciliation possible within this wider frame that we're discussing on trauma, race, identity? I think also, I just, I love one of the very first things that Allison said in the first half was, you know, in Jesus' and Jesus's interactions with people on earth, who did he move toward? The ones hurting the most, right? The parts of us hurting the most are where God wants to go in at the deepest of levels to bring healing. And then she said, she said this, which takes tinkering with the whole system. And I think for her part, you know, she was referring to the whole system of ourselves, But as we've seen, the system is big, and there are many systems, and there are many, many layers. And so I'm really glad that the conversation went in this direction, and I'm thrilled to share with you the second half today. As I've been ruminating on on these kinds of things for the last year, and, and doing my own work and, and doing my own writing, it stuck out to me and, and people are free to convince me otherwise, but I'm, I'm sure for my part that Christ's words on the cross, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, is the trauma-informed heart of scripture. That, that Jesus, having tasted humanity for his own part, participating in it, having experienced what the sin nature does, being blinded to the close presence of his father, is like, oh God, um, they have no idea what they're doing. And the good and right and just thing for you to do in light of that is to forgive them. I was in the shower the other week, and I mean, I do it most days, but the other week specifically, And I felt like Jesus said, you know, the reason we forgive our enemies is the exact same thing. Like like Jesus is saying, forgive your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. If you knew about them what I know about them, you would know that the just and good and right thing was to forgive them, to do good to those who have done bad to you. Jonathan, I'd, I'd only tweak one little tiny thing. Tweak me, brother. Let's get rid of, in our language, sin nature. Let's 
let's destroy that term because it's it is a word that tells us that the truth of our being the deepest part of our being is broken and um and i'm like no you can't build from that yeah. there is there has got to be something that is beautiful first right because mm-hmm. any anything that is real can exist on its own right you can't have a lie without truth but you sure can have truth without a lie right um, darkness has no existence of its own it's just the absence of something that has speed and has particle and wave and so anything that is true can exist on its own and i think that's where the imago day the image of god language really sits that's that's about the truth of our being we're we're not we're not snow covered dung a lot of us are dung covered diamonds and uh, and and the work is the eradication of all the lies that have covered up the truth of our being Come on. so that the way of our being can actually be an expression of the truth of our being yeah. i'm 100% with you forgive my well, i knew you were linguistic laziness yeah. no it's no no but totally i'm glad good. you i'm glad totally you normal. i'm glad you did can i can i add one thing to that gentlemen and I'd, I'd love to hear from obviously Amita and Allison as well on what they're thinking, but just kind of my, to summarize that, that my experience with what Paul just sh- shared, you know, I, I went to 21 specialists over nine years um, from 17 to 26, spent over a hundred grand in the first six years of my marriage um, to get a diagnosis for really, really, really complex pain and migraine issues. Um, I've averaged over a hundred full-blown migraines per calendar year for the last 22 years. Um, it's been a rough road as somebody who has attempted suicide twice and was unsuccessful, fortunately, um, pre-kids, kids are a good anchor, which all of you who have kids can know that sometimes they can be hard, but man, they're good anchors. <laughs> I did not have a shortage of experiences walking into a doctor's office and being reminded how broken I was. I did not have a shortage of conversations of people telling me what was wrong with me. Even if they didn't know how to diagnose it, they could symptomatically tell me what was wrong. I had an absolute lack of experiences with somebody saying what it looked like to become just a little bit more whole, right? So I, one of the first sentence that's in my work and everything that I do anytime that anybody looks at my work is this is not about being less broken. It's about becoming more whole. It's the active process of pursuing that. So why I mention that is in, in the conversation that we're talking about um, and what you mentioned there and forgive them, they don't know what they do. The first thing that came up in my spirit when you said that was that's the trauma-informed response from the victim being gracious enough to share that they are being wounded and though you slay me, I'll still love you is what Jesus is saying. It is in no way the idea of Jesus saying that you can abdicate your responsibility for the knowledge that I've just shared with you. So if I'm part of the offending party, if I'm part of the system, if I'm part of the colonizer, if I'm part of the straight person or whatever category you fall into, and if I'm part of the the person who just doesn't understand your pain, if somebody's communicating their pain to you, I don't think it's an idea that we can abdicate our responsibility to bear witness to that. So as Jesus is saying that, 
He's saying, I'm making you aware of it so that with that consciousness, you can be conscientious of how you engage with me the next time that you try to kill me, the next time you won't let me sit at your table, the next time that you won't have a conversation with me. Because that awareness is what allows us to develop the resilience to go, I'm willing to have the hard conversations because you may not have known the first time, but you very much knew when somebody made it aware or made you aware of it. So I just, I, I, what came That's up to me is just don't abdicate the responsibility once you've heard that you've wounded somebody. That's the work. Categorically, categorically agree with you. Could this also be the distinction between um, forgiveness and reconciliation? That forgiveness is for the sake of the victim um, so that they can move freely forward. And reconciliation is the arduous process that uh, is for the sake of the perpetrator in which the perpetrator lets go of any rights to expect an outcome. And reconciliation then requires telling the truth, owning what you've done and changing over time. And if, if there is a healing in that relationship, it is absolutely a miracle. And, uh, and so, but that sits on both parts of what you just said, I think. I'd like to hear. Yeah, it's also because, yeah, I was just, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm totally hogging and I want to hear Amita. I just want to say one thing neurologically to connect to that. When we're talking about fight or flight responses and life-threatening situations, conciliatory behavior, the actionable step of conciliation, conciliation means to disarm or to lay down arms. So if you're going to do reconciliation, it means you have to be willing to let go of whatever it is that you would use to harm another person. That's I agree with you, Paul. Sorry, and I'll step back. But if we understand that reconciliation isn't a cup of tea at a coffee shop because you made a black friend, <laughs> it's understanding that you you gotta you gotta be willing to actually put your guns away. You gotta lay them down and leave them down. Right. That's that's true reconciliation. That you could not harm them moving forward if you were proactive enough about it. And I, I would just, I want to hear from Amita as well. I, I would just, because um, I saw all of our faces, by the way, had, had responses when you said that, Jonathan. So I, I definitely was like wanting to hear. I, I would agree that um, for, I, 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 therapeutically forgiveness is very much, you, you sometimes need to stay armed. <laughs> and that doesn't mean you can't forgive. Forgiveness is very much about something that you do to become um a process you go through inside that has very little to do with the other person. Um, you can forgive somebody and, and need to, in some ways, and, and using the IFS idea of um, you might, the, a part of you might need to release some sort of energy, toxic energy that's poisoning your own soul. And you still need to deploy a, 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 what we would might call an angry manager or a justice seeking manager that needs to keep up whatever guard. Again, it's all about consciousness and intentionality as versus reactive. It's not coming out of the fight flight response. It's coming out of, in IFS we call it self, which is the whole, when you guys are, it's another word for Imago Dei. It's the, where you were whole before all this stuff got broken. So there's a consciousness and an intentionality with a part of you may need to release some of the toxicity because it's poisoning your own soul. But in order to do that, you might need to deploy a part of you that stays very guarded and very even um, armed, I would say. And I really want to hear from you. (laughs) I mean, I'm watching your face just like, I want to hear it. (laughs) You can forgive someone without ever trusting them again. Absolutely. Amita. 
Uh, yeah, my mom tells me all the time, Amita, your face, your face, <laughs> it speaks volumes. Um, so I better put words to my face uh, so that uh, there can be some familiarity in the language that my face is speaking. Uh, so when I hear the word forgive, my first, of course, we've just had the neuroscience class. So there's the trigger. And then there's the, is this, is this a threat to my way of life? Or is this a threat to my life? And um, as a person of color, I am convinced that it is a threat to my life. And perception is reality, so you can't tell me otherwise. <laughs> uh, I'm a good student. Thanks for the A. <laughs> um, but ha and, and having said that, I should, I should out myself um, that with forgiveness, I, I have studied forgiveness because it is such a powerful, loaded word. I've written far too much on it and read far too many books, hoping that if I got the A in as many courses or as many papers on forgiveness, then I would be able to check that box and then fool myself into believing that I have forgiven. And so what I, what I have decided then is to just leave that word alone, just leave it alone. And the reason why I say that is because as much as we talk about forgiveness being for the, the survivor slash victim, wherever you are on the continuum, and as much as we say, all, talk about all the good that comes out of forgiveness, it doesn't minimize the popular culture understanding, legitimate understanding that forgiveness um, is the Christian thing to do. Forgiveness makes you uh, the better person. And more than that, it doesn't erase the centuries of that word being weaponized and used by people in power to continue to disempower uh, those who are marginalized for all the reasons with this dangling, you know, carrot that says, well, don't worry when you die and go to heaven, you know, you forgive. And that's the thing that unlocks the door for you, not on this earth, because who cares about that? Um, but when you die and go to heaven, who knows? Question mark. But there are all the stories that are told, you know, you get to sit on a cloud and play a harp and, and be in a choir. And so because of the powerful history that is attached to that, that, that word forgiveness and all that it comes with, um, you see all the things that my face is telling you. And, and then I, it brings me back to what is reported that this man, Jesus, uh, is supposed to have said on the cross and what meaning I can make of it. I I would like to think that the idea was not so that those in power would continue to disempower, put it nicely, would continue to disempower the disenfranchised. And, I'm, and I stop there because the truth of the matter and, and the lived experience is, but that didn't happen. 
it was used and continues to be used until this day. And, and, you know, if I may future trip will continue to be used as a tool for disempowerment. Uh, so I am now on this little intellectual journey to try and, and conjure up another word. And it probably is not in the lexicon of, of the English language, as far as I know, um, that can appropriately articulate all the things that Allison said and Jerome said and Jonathan said, and, um, you know, the Reverend Mr. Young said, <laughs> um, to, to articulate that idea. But the word forgiveness and the way it is weaponized so effectively, no thank you. Yeah, I hear you. Thank you. So here's my question. For, forgive, for, for me, forgiveness or unforgiveness was keeping hold of a trauma or a memory or a loss that then dictated to me the way of my being. In other words, it was like I had a I had this like sexual abuse, right? So I'm carrying sexual abuse around now as a form of my identity because I'm not willing to let it go. Mm -hmm. And it begins to poison all my other relationships. And so the process of me getting to the place where I let it go so that it no longer, it's not that it justifies anything. Forgiveness doesn't justify anything, right? What was wrong is still wrong. And it's, it's not saying, oh, because God can climb into the, the damage and create something actually alive out of all the dead stuff that people delivered, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't justify what they did. Killing a person on the cross, especially an innocent person, is not justifiable. Not even the salvation of the entire cosmos justifies that. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is not linked to justification of action. No, you still you still need mm -hmm. to own what you've done. And that to me is where reconciliation then becomes a different journey. Mm -hmm. So what language are you playing with to help mm -hmm. to, to save the beauty of the process of letting go as the person who was perpetrated against, right? Mm -hmm. And and um, and de-weaponizing or the the phrase forgiveness as if it's a cover-up, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what kind kind of here. And I don't disagree with you that it's had that sort of impact. But I I don't want to lose the essentially necessary journey for those of us who've been harmed mm -hmm. um, out of the place of our damage, which requires us to let go. To decouple ourselves from those things and those people. Yeah. I, I love the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And if you mm. Google me, it'll probably be one of the top three things that show up. I love it that much. Because Jesus does this incredible thing where in the middle of a crowd that must have you know, uh, COVID being a COVID super spreader event of his time, um, 
on his way to see the most important person in the social strata of his time, stopped and held space for a woman who was as unclean as you can get in that time to tell her whole story. Fast, like just completely fascinating. I say to all my Christian friends, like one of the, the probably the topmost reason why I love Jesus is just loved breaking the rules. Like so many rules were broken in that story. And the I, I point to that to say, I have come to this place in my journey with the language of forgiveness that 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 says there is something divine that happens when a person who's been victimized is allowed to tell their story and that there is a person with power as much power as somebody like Jesus wielded because of all the reasons why he did in his time stops everybody else because they have the power to do so and says now you disempowered person, you person called unclean, you get to tell your full story. And, and the scriptures says, um, at least in, in, in my version of the Bible, <laughs> says he allowed for her to tell her full story, or in some will say her whole story. Now, if I was disenfranchised for as long as that woman was, 13 years of marginalization, because of something I had no control over, me, like my skin color, <laughs> I have a story to tell. And, you know, I might be nervous for the first few minutes, but when I get into the nitty gritty of my storytelling, I'm telling my story. And this man with power is holding the crowd at bay and forcing them to listen to my full story. And that, that, that divine mystical thing that happens for that woman is that she's healed. And so when I think of forgiveness, and this might be like sort of like a academic <laughs> leap, <laughs> I, I have to make, make the point um, with facts. But when I think of forgiveness, I go immediately to that story, intuitively to that story. And I hold precious this idea that there is something that happens in that, in, in the interaction between the harmed and the harmer, the disempowered and those with power, the marginalized and those in the center. When space is held for the telling of the full story. And so uh, cryptic maybe, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's beautiful. I, I, I almost don't want to add anything because that, that was just a perfect place to stop. I, I, as a therapist, what's so intriguing to me about what you just said is the publicity of it. The publicity of Jesus saying, stop, listen to this story. So you go to a therapist's office and someone tells you their story and it's safe, Right. But that's not the same thing as what you're talking about, which is that, um, I don't know, broader, broader telling of the story, broader telling of the story. I, I, I just, that was just very, a beautiful image to me of Jesus yeah. saying, no, 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 stop crowd, stop. Not that you have to go in hiding over here 
you know, in our modern culture, you go off by yourself to your therapy, you know, to whomever, you know, again, using the therapeutic model and tell someone and it's safe, that, that, that brings a certain amount of healing, sure. But it's not exactly this broader systemic um, public, I don't, I don't know, that's just what came to mind as I was listening to you, what the value in, in, in that he stopped the crowds on her behalf. Some of us are sicker. Nicodemus had to come at night where it was safer. <laughs> he was a person yeah. in power. He had he felt he had a lot more to lose. There, there it is, right? Yeah. This is a woman who's lost everything. And you also got to recognize the two amazing contexts. And by the way, Amita, that is my favorite story in scripture, period, paragraph one, as a long-term patient. <laughs> but two, because it's got a lot of quantum entanglement stuff in it that's kind of trippy, like Jesus losing power. It's like sci-fi stuff. It's kind of awesome. Um, but, you know, two things that are fascinating in that to the point that Paul made about Nicodemus is honoring the fact that her story required her to to take hold of her own empowerment. Nobody gave her permission. Mm-hmm. She had she wasn't given a position of power. She had to do something that was so self-directed against everything. I mean, literally against the tide, literally. Right. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, Jesus speaks to her and calls her daughter, recognizes mm-hmm. her as family, acknowledges her identity, and she's in the middle of an active crime, right? Yeah. She's in the middle of a punishable offense. She just touched a rabbi, right? It's like the, the sheer audacity of the man to stop and call her family in the middle of what is legitimately a crime, according to the context of that time is so like I, I just I've spent so much time sitting looking at that going we do so much stuff that we think we, we're going to do it and it's going to make sense and it's going to be polished and it's going to be it's going to be articulated or, or facilitated in the most appropriate way and nothing in that story is appropriate it's all inappropriate on every angle it's inappropriate one of the things that I found fascinating as Amida was sharing and also to connect with with the honesty of Paul share from a clinical perspective, from a brain perspective, when I see somebody who's dealing with something that is monumentally insurmountable, I mean, I really have to hear their whole story to properly understand it. There's a layer of it in terms of understanding what their history is, their genetic history, their trauma history, all of that. But I also have to contextualize that in their ancestral history. Mm-hmm. I have to take into consideration everything that they brought into that that they had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. everything that they brought into that, that they had nothing to do with. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it is how do we take what we've learned so effectively in the last 20 years with trauma informed care about the individual trauma and apply that to the group ancestral generational trauma that goes in order for me to effectively help you understand what's so hard for me mm-hmm. in terms of forgiveness is how do we adequately allow for me to speak for generations of people? Is that even possible? Like, how do I put that into space? Like you're talking about centuries of people that have carried. And the interesting thing genetically, if you have a powerful enough limbic experience, your brain can rewire your DNA for 17 generations, 17, both positively and negatively. This is what the scripture has talked about with generational curses. This is why there are people alive right now that can still physically experience what it felt like to be enslaved because their grandparent had a grandparent who was still alive. Those stories are still real, right? So I think it's really fascinating to recognize that, you know, this is taking all of these skill sets we've developed in these powerful places around rehabbing and, and, and recovery 
and trauma-informed care, but also going in order, and not to speak for you, Anita, I hope I'm not doing that, but just to recognize it in a clinical sense, in order for me to properly help someone move towards healing, I, I have to understand both their trauma and their ancestral or their generational trauma that comes into bias their experience that they had nothing to do with. Mm. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been stellar and vulnerable and rich. And uh, I don't take lightly anybody's uh, gift of time, but but more so their, their gift of their humanity, um, gift of your vulnerability uh, to come in here with a group of people who most of you don't know uh, even even me and 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 also the untold audience, right? Who will not all be gracious and kind, uh, but to still offer up each of yourselves as you have done, I think, is an incredible gift. And I I believe this will be very impactful for many many people. So I'm I feel very blessed and honored to have got to sit here and participate and listen and. Thank you. Thank you all. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, my friends. A huge thank you to Paul Young, to Allison Cook, Dr. Jerome D. Libba, and Amita Mansare Richardson. You'll find links to more about each of those people in the show notes. Paul Young has a recent new book out that he wrote with another friend, uh, Brad Jersak, who's been on this show, who I'm a huge fan of. It's called The Pastor, A Crisis, something you may want to go and check out. Dr. Jerome has got a really excellent Enneagram resource called The Brain-Based Enneagram, You Are Not a Number, and it is very, very helpful for me in my own learning, and I, I quote from it in my book. Allison is the author of Boundaries for Your Soul, How to Turn Your Overwhelming Thoughts and Feelings into Your Greatest Allies. You should definitely go and check that out. And Amita, one of the, amongst the many fascinating things that Amita is working on, one of them is a homeschool hub. It's more like a co-working space for children. They offer programs to help children recognize their potential and help make parents sort of... uh, work on real stuff with their kids you know helping kind of to really future-proof their kids and build a framework for interacting with your children where they're treated like uh, sages and, and experts in, in their various things and so you can find out more on that at sageandsavant.online as well as in the show notes there's classes there that you can register for as well resources you can buy so thank you all so much thank you to my guests this has been a truly special time Next week on the podcast, I am doing a B-side to this very conversation with my friend Chris. We're going to start doing B-sides on most episodes, and they're going to be available just on Patreon to my supporters. But uh, we're going to do the first one right here on the main podcast for all of you to listen to. So if you enjoyed this conversation, I want to hear some of the behind the scenes and some of the... uh, the things that happened in me and, and, and one of my friends as a result of listening to this, then tune back in next week for episode 102, where we do the very first podcast B-side. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. You guys are amazing. And thank you to my brand new supporters. i got like five or six brand new supporters in the last week. And I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. Grace and peace. Much love. We'll talk soon.